Looking for more insurance industry content? Check out the Jacobson Group's blog, The Jacobson Journal. As the leading provider of talent to the insurance industry, Jacobson's blog covers topics including the current state of the insurance labor market, best practices for hiring and retention, strategies for maintaining a strong corporate culture, recommendations for leading through change, and much more. Whether you're a seasoned insurance leader or new to the industry, our blog is your source for actionable knowledge. To visit the blog, go to blog.jacobsononline.com and be sure to subscribe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered, our final episode of 2023. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering a deadly tornado outbreak across the South, how the string of storms is raising concerns about the nation's preparedness. Plus, we chat with NAMIC's Jimmy Grandy to recap how Congress supported the insurance industry this year and discuss what's ahead for 2024. But first, a string of deadly tornadoes across the southern part of the U.S. caused extensive property damage, claimed at least six lives, caused dozens of injuries, and left tens of thousands without power in Tennessee and Kentucky. The EF3 tornado in Clarksville, Tennessee, killed three people, including a 10-year-old boy. Just north of Nashville, authorities say a second EF2 tornado tossed one mobile home into another, killing three people inside. According to emergency management officials in Tennessee, the potential economic impact of the damage is significant. The ongoing threat of severe weather raises questions about the nation's preparedness and resilience in the face of a forecast calling for strong El Nino conditions across the U.S. this winter. Well, Congress hopes to address some of those questions as members consider the nation's resiliency efforts. The House voted this week to pass the NAMIC-supported Promoting Resilient Buildings Act. With more Americans moving into high-risk areas for severe weather, H.R. 5473 provides vital funding with clear and consistent guidelines for communities looking to better protect themselves. Empowering homeowners with funding to retrofit their properties to better withstand extreme weather is a major step forward for federal disaster policy. North Carolina Congressman Chuck Edwards introduced the bill in September, and he calls it a common-sense approach to reforming the building code system. My bill, the Promoting Resilient Buildings Act of 2023, will codify the definition to mean the two latest published editions of building codes which is expected to prevent significant administrative burdens on states and local municipalities responsible for producing hazard mitigation plans, reduce the burdensome regulations on trade industries responsible for adapting their techniques to meet new standards and codes, and support stabilized building costs that would otherwise be interrupted by frequently changing building codes and rising construction costs. H.R. 5473 makes permanent the qualification that communities adopt one of the prior two model International Code Council building codes, which had been set to expire this year. If the bill does not become law, only those communities that have adopted the most recent models would be eligible for mitigation grants. 
Also on Capitol Hill, the House Financial Services, Housing and Insurance Subcommittee addressed some concerns affecting the new era of risk. In a hearing titled Housing Affordability, Governmental Barriers and Market-Based Solutions, Representative Nidia Velasquez outlined her concerns on increasing liability insurance and umbrella policy costs for affordable and middle-income housing. Testifying on behalf of the National Apartment Association, Ariana Royster told representatives what she thought they could do to address the situation. So I think Congress should use its regulatory and oversight authority to monitor activity in the insurance market while looking for ways to drive increased capacity in the insurance and reinsurance markets to bring the costs down. Not acknowledged during this exchange, however, were the various inflationary pressures and market realities contributing to the new era of risk consumers and insurance face in today's insurance markets. In recent months and in several different venues, NAMIC has worked to educate members and other interested parties about the confluence of factors, which includes rising material and construction costs, reinsurance rate increases, escalating climate risk, legal system abuse, and population shifts toward riskier parts of the country. After a wild year in D.C., Congress is set to leave Washington at the end of the week for its holiday recess, but not before reaching an agreement and passing a supplemental spending bill. On today's Unscripted, Neil Aldrich sits down with NAMIC's Jimmy Grandy, who was recently named one of the Hill's top Washington lobbyists, to recap this year's congressional accomplishments on behalf of the insurance industry and discuss what's ahead next year. As we approach the end of 2023, we thought it might be a good use of time today on the podcast to have more of the NAMIC staffers join us. So Jimmy Grandy, NAMIC Senior Vice President of Federal and Political Affairs and the person who runs our Washington operation, is going to join us on the podcast to kind of take a little bit of a look back at the unique, crazy, odd year in Washington, both in terms of the political scene and the the various debates around who was going to be Speaker of the House. Also, a little bit about some of the insurance issues that are going on in Washington right now, and there's plenty of them. A couple of them are fairly troublesome. So we're going to cover that here today in the podcast with Jimmy. So, Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Neil. It's my honor to be here. Sure thing. So why don't we start I guess on the political side of things, we could start in a million places. There's a lot to cover. We could, typically, this segment of the podcast is not that long. We could spend an hour just on what's going on in Washington today, let alone trying to recap the whole year. So let's just kind of cut to it. Um, we have a new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, not necessarily somebody with a deep insurance background, didn't have a lot of our, wasn't on our relevant committees in Washington and those kinds of things. So, and, and apart from a lot of the other current leadership, which we did have a good relationship with, not that we don't have a good relationship with Mike, but just not the depth of the relationship. So start there. What's new? What do we know? What do we need to know about the new speaker here? Um, thanks, Neil. You know, I mean, part of the answer is we don't know yet, right? We're only five weeks into this. Um, you know, by all accounts, uh This new speaker is universally well-liked, thoughtful, smart, nice guy, 
right? Gets a lot of points for being a nice guy, just friends yeah. with everybody, whether people get along or don't get along with them. But, you know, he has a little, very little uh, relevant experience for the new job, right? Like he wasn't a guy that was a part of leading others in Congress in any meaningful way, which is probably what qualified him to get the job. So yeah. I, I get that. But, uh, you know, Speaker of the House has a lot of responsibility, um, a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, he's now here's what's not different. Um, the people that he's leading. It's the same group of people um, who just deposed their previous speaker um, for a number of reasons that um, aren't perfectly clear. And, you know, it, it, he. Part of the group of people that he's got to lead uh, seem to measure their existence by how much veracity by which they can attack him. Uh, you know, they're they're for some of them, not all of them, only a few of them. But it feels like the more that they can be at odds with anybody in Washington who's leading, it advances their personal brand and helps them launch their next podcast, right? And that's not what you hope for out of members of Congress, but we've got a handful of them here now that that is what seems to motivate them. So, I mean, part of the interesting part, Jimmy, beyond what you just described here, of working with the new speaker and his background is, you know, this summer, it's interesting, you and I met with a lot of the players uh, that were involved in, we happened to meet with the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, we met with Jim Jordan, we met with... Um, with Patrick McHenry, who today just announced he wasn't going to seek re-election again. So there's there's more work to do here uh, in rebuilding some of those relationships going forward. There is, Neil, you know, and that's you know, a great point that can't be understated. You know, groups like us, you know, we, we've spent over a decade getting to know um, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Chairman of the Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry. They, they know NAMIC. They know Namek inside and out. They yeah. they know you. Uh, they know what we think. Um, and while I've got no reason to think, you know, Speaker Johnson isn't going to be a great leader for our industry, we haven't spent the last decade um, visiting with him about the issues that matter most to us. Right. And we will now. And we'll start that process. It sounds like, you know, after the election, we'll have a new House Financial Services Committee chair as well. That we will likely know, hopefully, probably somebody probably on the committee currently, and hopefully we can develop more relationships there. But that's the way the cycle always goes in Washington. Of course, that's one of the reasons why we have to be politically active, right, to hey, hey, always hey, keep fair, these relationships. There's a fair chance after the election we'll have a new speaker, too. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent point. So let's get to that just a little bit here. So today we're here in December. Uh, and. We just, I think, was it yesterday, I believe, that the House majority, uh, it, the Republican majority in the House got a little smaller. It can't get much smaller uh, and still be um, a majority. So tell us where we are at the moment. We, With the George Santos expulsion from Congress, I believe is the right word, um, we now have a three-seat majority. Is that correct? Yeah, the Republicans are, are you know, they had a historically narrow uh, margin in four seats. And, you know, the George Santos sagas has probably been well told on the pages of every newspaper. But uh, you can't over 
overplay or overstate the significance when you have a four seat majority and you need 218 um losing one it's a pretty big deal and there's a couple interesting parts to this you know one it's the process of expulsion what that you know there's no i don't think there's any doubt in terms of anybody's minds whether this character george santos was a good guy i mean he's almost certainly um lied his entire life and probably broken many laws however he hadn't been convicted when they expelled him and if you cross over into the u.s senate there's a current u.s senator who has already been convicted um mr menendez from new jersey um and so that's going to pose an interesting challenge because you know there's only the democratic senate is only one seat majority it's 51 49 right so what happens if 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 he doesn't survive. I mean, he's probably going to go to jail, it looks like. I mean, he, I'm sure everybody's followed that saga. I mean, he's been paid in gold bars that have been stolen. Um, so that's not going to end well either. And then, you know, Neil, if you zoom back over to the House, there's another interesting uh, seat. There's a congressman from central Ohio, Bill Johnson, who just took a job at a university, local university out there. He's going to be leaving Congress in February. And the the law in Ohio is such that they don't appoint. They would have a special election, uh, but they don't trigger a special election if it's too close to the next election. So it will appear that that seat could be vacant for most of the year. So that would take that, it to two, two, to two, two seats. Seat yeah. So yeah. now you're talking, you know, a couple guys trip and fall down the stairs, you know, and. Right. and you don't no longer have a majority. They couldn't pass much or do much with four seat majority. So right. two or three seats is just going to make what was already impossible less likely. Well, that that's a good transition into, you know, the whole policy side, the issue side of things going in Washington with this political backdrop that obviously we have to operate in. We have precious little control over um, and we have to sort of deal with the personalities that are there. Um, no matter what we might think of them individually. But um, lots of issues, both in terms of the legislative discussion, probably more troubling perhaps on the regulatory federal agency side. Um, lots to cover here on the issue side. So, so you know, we, we at NAMIC, you know, we've talked a lot about this, what we call the new era of risk. This is this convergence of, extreme weather and inflationary pressures and regulatory issues for the industry and reinsurance capacity issues, et cetera, that have all created the dynamics that we see in the marketplace right now that are troubling. Um, so let's talk about first, let's, let's spend a minute on there's some particularly new dynamics as it relates to the weather related risks, climate change, whatever you want to call it from the Senate budget committee. Um, and some data collection efforts there. So just talk through what's going on there. So, you know, Neil, it's funny when you say, you know, what's going on there. Uh, it, there's like 10 different things. It, yeah. it, it's it's as though um, those that would like to, um, you know, eliminate fundamental risk-based pricing of insurance and commoditize the insurance industry products um, have all gotten together. Because from 
the Senate Budget Committee, which really bears repeating, Senate Budget Committee. They they not do, our normal not our normal stopping place. Yeah, you know, yeah. I get why most people in America don't know about what the Senate Budget Committee does, but you know, they do what their name says. They're supposed to work on the federal budget, so there's a lot to do in that space, as you might imagine. But you know, the chairman um, is a very passionate is very passionate about climate change and trying to do something to stop it, you know, and on the scale of uh, climate concern, you know, he's probably a little further out there than, you know, certainly the insurance industry is well aware of climate change's impact on the insurance industry. We've seen it firsthand. We've we've had the losses. We've we've seen the lies. He's taken to um, embarking on a data call, which he's got questionable authority on, but it's the the theme of what he's trying to prove. What he's trying to say is um, climate has gotten so bad, it has led to an uninsurable America, almost, right? right? And the insurance industry uh, is culpable for climate change because it is a supporter of fossil fuels. And when they say supporter of, they mean the, as in, you know, the insurance insures everything. So um, you really can't equate support with everything the insurance industry does. You know, we, we insure bad people, good people, you know, tall people, right. every industry. Um, so it's a tough um, thread to connect. And, but it's it doesn't stop there. To your point, Neil, it's a, you know, become a theme across the city where we're dealing with this uh, new whole of government approach to the climate. And instead of constructively trying to figure out ways in which the industry can partner to mitigate um, climate's impact on the built environment, it becomes more of um, an excuse to sort of blame the industry um, and use it as a reason to collect data, meaning that you'll hear them say things like um, extreme weather has has led to an uninsurable uh, environment in America today. And, you know, as you know, you you talked about it at our annual meeting a month or two ago. It's a pretty complex soup that's led yeah. to the current insurance marketplace today. Um, you now, in climate, by any um, reasonable measurement is a big piece of it, but it's it's probably not even number one. You know, the combination of people moving en masse to dangerous areas in the country, um, the impacts of inflation, right? Like these yeah. are things that have made our business litigation a lot environment. harder. Yeah. yeah, litigation environment. So certainly the climate is on that list and it's a big part of it, but you cannot equate the current insurance market today um, and the increase in uh, costs and the tightening of availability in high-risk markets to only climate. It's not responsible, um, but it's becoming popular, and that's a challenge for us. So we mentioned he's got a data collection effort and a letter out to many companies asking for information May may turn into some hearings at some point in time in the future. Who knows? We've got another data collection effort that's been offered by the Federal Insurance Office, our friends at the FIOS. So 
why don't we talk through what that is for the listeners and, and explain what's going on here with the FIO data collection effort? Sure. You know, that the idea of FIO launching its data call has been around for over a year. Um, the danger of it, though, I don't think it's fully appreciated. You know, um, having a federal insurance office that's there to help in international matters and help advise Congress and the administration on matters of insurance, whether it be terrorism or flood, federal programs or otherwise, is, is a fine notion. Um, but the idea that you would have a federal office that's not a regulator start to collect data on an annual basis. You know, I've had some people say to me, Neil, um, you know, from the industry that things like, well, let's just help them. They're just trying to figure out um, how to better mitigate against climate. And that's not accurate, I don't believe. I really don't. Um, first of all, if they really wanted to learn more, they would work with our state regulators who are aggressively opposed to this effort. Um, and they would be constructive in their conversations with us on what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and they seem to be uh, to repel uh, our counsel and advice around how you could go about this. And so we, NAMIC, have been um, at the tip of the spear on this. You know, a lot of folks who have to work in Washington sometimes are afraid to you know, criticize an elected official or a regular or a regulator. Um, and we've worked to get multiple bills introduced in Congress to take away their subpoena authority, because uh, if you're not a regulator, you shouldn't have subpoena authority. And certainly they're doing exactly what we'd always hoped and feared, hoped they wouldn't do and feared they might do, which is collect duplicative data from our industry um, under under one auspice, we want to understand climate and then uh, take that data in a way that's not protected and that can be shared and used and they'll claim it's protected, but it's not. And other agencies can get it, it's foilable. So when our, the day our industry starts sending lots of information to FIO, uh, you know, let's go back and talk about legal system abuse because that's the next, that's the next, um foot sure. the road sure and let, let alone what else might be able to somebody else might be able to do with that data beyond what FIO claims they want to do to examine the impact of climate financial risk uh, it's going to be an interesting question it's going to be interesting i know we had a really good letter from the florida insurance commissioner to the FIO director or to janet yellen i believe actually uh, Treasury Secretary kind of uh, issuing objections to this effort. Be interesting to see whether other states, we've talked to several state regulators who have concerns about this. Um, I know that FIO and the NEIC have been trying to work through some way to go about this, but clearly those efforts haven't really resulted in much change here. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes uh, and see whether there's a legal challenge to this at some point in time or whatever the case might be. Well, have to keep our eyes on it for certain because it's, it's a dangerous precedent. It, it might be worth um, quoting my boss here, uh, you know, Neil Aldridge, who when he heard about the strategy of the government's whole of government effort, sort of launched the whole of NAMIC effort. Um, and, you know, it's because 
of you know my counterpart and colleague Erin Collins and her efforts talking to each state regulator that we're starting to see a convergence of support where they're able to talk to their federal delegations and say you know do you have some concerns with the state regulation of insurance is there a reason why you would want this duplication out of Washington um, and that's been very effective so um, yeah. we're not gonna and we'll keep it up yeah we'll keep the pressure on it's it's a very I mean Yes, in the big scheme of things, this is a data collection effort, but it's much more than that in terms of its potential ramifications. And hopefully we can get some traction with our legislation in Congress that would limit FIO's subpoena power. I doubt we're going to pass in time for this to be impacted by it, unfortunately, but it certainly creates pressure on them that someone is watching uh, what they're doing. Absolutely. And they have said... um, openly that they intend to do this is a basis from which to build on and they intend to do this data call over and over and over again every year yeah right so uh, i think we are gaining momentum and and uh, i'm optimistic we're going to make a difference yeah me too it's it's been good work but it's uh it's a challenging set of issues so let's let's change out of the data and regulatory side just for a minute let's spend just a minute on artificial intelligence just because there's a lot going on in this space at every level but certainly you know, the, the discussions in Washington about some sort of regulatory framework as it relates to the usage of artificial intelligence, probably much broader than just a discussion about the insurance industry. Probably, you know, it's a much broader kind of across the economy kind of discussion about it. But talk about our work here on this question. You know, you you um, set it up exactly right, Neil. You know, we are an industry that's going to be impacted, can be impacted, has been impacted by our, the use of artificial intelligence. However, when you're talking about our federal policymakers and they're looking at the growth of uh, AI and the different uses of it, their primary focus tends to be around national security, um, health innovation, right? And so they're not always thinking about the insurance space. Uh, This is one of those areas that I think our industry has been well positioned on because we have so many smart professionals throughout each of our companies that focus in this space because we've been one of the, um, I think, one of the smartest adapters of using AI. And so... What NAMIC's done is it's put together an advisory committee of all of the smart people inside our companies to help advise us on this um, and went out and and um, hired a AI specialist to come on board and help us. And so really what I what the focus right now is, and this is you know at the fifty thousand foot, is we very much support Washington figuring out a way to stop the bad guys from doing bad things with AI. Right. However, we have a great concern that in the effort to do that, they could thwart a whole lot of helpful innovation that is going to be necessary. It can save lives on the, the medical side, but whether AI is used to help speed up claims payment or help make processes less onerous for our policyholders or used in AI or used in a um, health field, um, we're going to need it and it's coming. And so I, I don't have a great degree of confidence yet in Washington to get it right, but I have been encouraged by some of the conversations. 
Well, that's good. And, and it's obviously, you know, tr trying to pass a bill in Congress or create a regulatory structure for new technologies that affects lots of industries with some level of precision as it relates to ours is kind of a difficult needle to thread. Um, but I'm I'm glad we're trying and we're, I know we're working hard to accomplish this, that for the membership. Well, listen, Jimmy, we, we haven't even talked about flood insurance or um, any of the other auto insurance issues or, you know, all kinds of other typical things we could talk about. We've covered enough, though, probably for today. Um, but suffice it to say, you know, for those in the membership, you know, the team in Washington is working on your behalf every day. Uh, kind of fighting with both hands sometimes to keep our message in front of policymakers, in front of the regulatory bodies, and certainly developing relationships with members of Congress uh, at every level and in every party to help uh, advance our issues there. So, Jimmy, th thanks for your work there. It's a challenging set of issues for us at the moment. Kind of, kind of makes us wish for a good old-fashioned credit scoring debate or perhaps uh <laughs> you know maybe we get a tria reauthorization debate going on again sometime in a few years but uh, there's a lot of a lot of particularly active issues right now at the moment in washington but thanks for all your work on behalf of the membership there okay thanks neil the the threats do certainly seem more existential today but uh we're well we're well built and we've got a great membership supporting us and uh, we'll continue to to win and fight on these, and happy to come back next year and we can talk about some of those other issues. We will, and we'll 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 do an election preview too. I'm sure as we get closer to it, that'll be inevitable that we'll talk about the election. Uh, Super so easy to good. see what's going to happen at the upcoming election, so that'll be that'll be easy. Yeah, that'll be very simple. It's very it's very clear to see how that's going to go right now, right? Yes, yes, well, listen, sir. thanks again, Jimmy. Appreciate your time and appreciate all your work, and we'll talk soon. All right, take care. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. It's also a wrap for me as I head off into retirement from NAMIC at the end of the year. It's been my pleasure to bring you Insurance Uncovered for the past six years, and I hope you'll continue to tune in for more insurance news and perspective in 2024 and beyond. I'm Kathy Imus, wishing you a wonderful holiday season. <music>